Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. In this program with Dr. Newfeld, we continue our series, He Made Me Human. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, with Dr. John Newfeld as we listen to part one of our message on what it means to be human. Our view of ourselves is one of the most potent and powerful spiritual forces in the world. It not only affects us, it affects everything else around us as well. Stephen Hawking said, We are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of a hundred thousand million galaxies that it's difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. Uh, Did you hear those words? Insignificant creatures, minor and average, unnoticed, uncared for. Those words are potent and are a powerful spiritual force in the world. Many would rob humanity of all dignity. Benjamin Franklin thought that man was simply a tool-producing animal. Robert Louis Stevenson said, Man is a devil, weakly fettered by generous beliefs. The famous behaviorist psychologist B.F. Skinner argued that humanity had no freedom and no dignity. Charles Darwin believed us simply to be an animal that has succeeded in surviving. And the philosopher Schopenhauer was once asked who he was, and he said, I wish to God that I knew. How different are the words of David some 3,000 years ago? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the work of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the seas. Did you hear David's words? We are noticed. We are created to be rulers over the vastness of the created order, reaching even to moon and stars and beyond. We are crowned with glory and honor by a God who fashioned us. Significantly different words from those of Stephen Hawking, wouldn't you say? See, our view of ourselves is one of the most potent and powerful spiritual forces in the world. It will set the course for civilizations and for our own individual lives. If you think you are an evolved animal, you will struggle with and never discover the reason for your existence. In the end, you will find yourself purposeless and meaningless. But there is more. You will not value human life. Indeed, the outcome of this philosophy has already borne fruit. We live in a society that has forgotten who we are. That's why we can put to death millions of unborn children and simply label it a personal choice. That's why some advocate for the right to put to death those who are suffering and the elderly. That's why we end marriage when it's inconvenient or when it's at odds with our inner happiness, no matter what it might mean for others. That's why we can be absolutely callous toward the poor or despise the cause of the refugee or the orphan or the elderly. We do these things because we think that our lives don't actually matter. And what we think of ourselves not only determines our spiritual future, but also tells us what kind of a world or a society we will live in. Will we be a people of compassion, where it is our duty to care for the weak and the despised, or do we live in a world in which the strongest and the fittest and the most aggressive alone have the capacity and the right to survive? How we answer this is a potent spiritual force. You know, today and tomorrow, from the end of Genesis 1, we will reflect on a serious spiritual issue. What does it mean to be human? 
Let's read Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know, as we're going to see from reading these two verses, they speak about who we are, and the rest of the passage, as we're going to see tomorrow, speaks about our purpose or our mission. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's come to terms with our essential being. What does it mean to be human? You know, from this text, we could see that God has given us a special and a unique place in his creation. Again, according to this text, you are different than anything else that has been made. And on top of that, a value has been given to your life, which makes you vastly more valuable and precious than any other thing that has been made. You know, if we, the human race, were tomorrow to lose the Mona Lisa or the pyramids or any of the magnificent formations of nature or even a species of the wonderful creatures that God has made, as significant as that is, and please don't hear me to say that these things are not significant, and yet they are of much lesser value than the loss of a human being. Why? Again, from our text, we notice that the full complexity of God's character is involved in our creation. See, up till now, we have noted that at the beginning of each day, God repeats a formula. Each act of creation started with these words, and God said. And after God spoke, there was. But now, in our passage, the wording changes. It now says, let us make man in our image. God makes this personal. I know there is no explicit teaching of the Trinity in the Old Testament, and Genesis 1.26 is not teaching the Trinity. We come to hear about it in the New Testament, and that's good. The people of Israel first heard this account of creation while they were living in the desert, having recently come out of Egypt. Many of them were still worshiping idols, numerous pagan gods. The last thing they would have understood was the Trinity. That would have seemed to them like polytheism. Soon they would have constructed three idols, one for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Spirit. They would never have understood. God was to leave that revelation about his essential nature until much later. But for now, Israel learned that the full complexity of God's character, a complexity that we later find is that there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, was involved in the creation of man. Something special was said when God created us. Our creation was simply different than the creation of every other thing. And why is that? Again, according to our text, we are created in the image of God. Think of how revolutionary that is. We're living in a day when people are often considered to be a problem and not a precious commodity. There are too many people, we're told. We've got to stop overcrowding. And that, of course, means that people are a problem. You know, I see signs on a bumper sticker which says, the more people I meet, the more I love my cat. I see people snarling at traffic jams, too many ignorant, stupid people on the road, some people say. I see people in lineups in stores wondering why that old person at the front doesn't hurry up. What a dumb person. I've said it too to my son one day. 
We heard news of a certain coffee bean that was selling for about $200 for a quarter pound coffee beans that were swallowed by a certain kind of cat, and eventually they were pooped out and then served as rare and expensive coffee. And I said to my son, Jonathan, well, no one ever failed to become rich by underestimating people's intelligence. You know, that seemed funny then. But now I feel rebuked. What has been happening is a subtle change in thinking, a subtle change that has affected all of us, even Christians, that we no longer see people and individuals as a resource and a treasure, the most precious treasure this earth has, but rather as an obstacle, a series of dumb bodies that simply get in the way. What are we saying? You know, one prominent Canadian scientist recently said, we need to get the world population down to about 3 billion, and we need to do it quickly. I remember thinking, are you looking for volunteers to jump off bridges or subject themselves to voluntary sterilization? Perhaps people with handicaps or or people with a lower than normal IQ or people with a weaker constitution, maybe they ought to be the first to go. Are you telling us we need to find ways of getting rid of so many of us? See, is it any wonder that so many people suffer with a problem with self-esteem or any sense of personal value? Is it any wonder that so many people live lives of rebellion and anger? We don't know who we are. And in some not-too-subtle ways, we are being told we're a nuisance rather than as the product of the most precious act of God's creation. See, I know that it's hard for some to imagine We've been so ingrained with evolutionary thinking that the idea of humanity as special and precious is far from us. And how we think is reflected in our language and in our attitudes. We've become bothered by people not filled with wonder and compassion and love for people. We need to return to what the Bible teaches us about what it means to be human. See, when God created man, He created someone in his own image. You know, some older thinkers used to say, there's a spark of the divine in everyone. That doesn't mean that we are gods, for we are not. We are fully human. We are not divine. And even though we live forever, we do so because of the will of God, not because of some innate eternal quality. No, we are humans, but to be human means that in some remarkable ways, we are just like God. We're going to think about this when we come back. When we study what the Bible says about who we are, we begin to realize how revolutionary this thinking is in our day. Our mindset and behavior towards human beings have become so unbiblical that we're often unconscious of it. Yet as believers, we must be the first ones to start seeing humanity the way God sees it. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld helps us get a clearer sense of how much similarity we share with our Creator. Every home depends on God's supply. Back to the Bible Canada relies upon His supply through the faithfulness of our listeners. Thank you for your gifts that allow us to make new resources to help support you in your walk with Christ, as well as sustain our Bible teaching programs. Your support makes this ministry possible. Your generosity allows us to proclaim God's truth. Our families need it. If you wish to support us in a form of a donation, please visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. 
Or you may consider joining our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and have your contribution to this ministry recur on a monthly basis. To find out more about the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and the exclusive benefits you unlock by joining, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Some people have misunderstood what is meant by the image of God. They look at the word image and the word likeness and say, well, that must mean that we look like God. God must have hands and legs and feet the way that we do. But Jesus contradicted that. In John 4, 24, Jesus simply says, God is spirit. And Moses put it this way in Deuteronomy 4, 15 to 16. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape formed like a man or a woman. God is spirit. That means he has no form. He doesn't look like us. He is hidden from human eyes. Whatever the Bible means when it says we are created in the image of God does not mean that we look like God. Let's get a little ahead of ourselves and read Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. See, our physical body shares components with all other things. They are created from the dust, from the ground, and that's where they'll one day return. Of course, we do know that we await the resurrection of the body, but there is a sense in which we are indeed animals, for we are physical. Even though our makeup is different and superior to all other living forms, yet still, we are like the creatures that have lungs and a heart and a circulatory system and so forth. We, like they, are physiological. But what marks us as different is the fact that God has breathed his breath into us. And this breath of God is, first of all, immaterial, and second, is a reflection of the one who breathed into us. Therefore, what does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, for one, a great many Bible teachers believe that a part of the answer is found in studying what has been called the attributes of God, or to put it another way, the essential nature of the makeup of God. But how are we to study God, who is eternal? Well, the answer is that God has revealed himself to us or disclosed to us his nature. He did it in the Bible. And as we study the Bible, we notice that in some ways, well, we're not like God at all. Theologians call this the incommunicable attributes of God. That is, there are things about the nature of God that we do not share in any sense at all. And so, for instance, we find out that God is life in himself. In him is what we might call non-derived life. That is, God's life and existence is not derived from any other factor outside of himself. And that's most unlike us. God is unchangeable. God is timeless in his own being. He is eternal and we are temporal. God is omnipresent, meaning that he is present to all spaces at all times. We are spatially limited. God is triune. God is spirit and has no physical body. In ways like this and in many others, there are ways in which we are not like God at all. But in other ways, we are remarkably like God. We've been given wisdom and insight, knowledge of the nature of things. Goodness, mercy, patience are things we strive towards. 
We have an insatiable desire for truth, for righteousness, for justice. These are not only essential qualities of God, they mark the human experience. You know, traditionally, Bible teachers have broken these attributes into at least four categories. The first is expressed in intelligence and insight. To those who say human beings and our place in the universe can be likened to no more than a small flea on the back of one dog out of thousands, well, all that might be true except for this little remembered fact. This flea actually knows that. We are self-aware and conscious of ourselves and our place among things. See, intelligence, insight, self-consciousness, the ability to project onto the future, the ability to transform thoughts and ideas into realities, this is a part of the image of God. See, a second category is the category of morality. In Psalm 4, verse 1, David prays that God would have mercy on him, and here's what he says. Answer me when I call you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress, be merciful to me, and hear my prayer. See, David was convinced God would help him because, well, God's righteous. He does what's right. God is moral. God is motivated to act by what is right, and he rejects what's wrong. We are in God's image, and therefore, we too have a basic understanding of right and wrong. That's why every human being is held accountable to God. There are resident categories of morality in every single one of us. That's why God appeals to us to do what's right. You know, I know we live in a day in which we are constantly being told not to judge anyone else's behavior. One form of lifestyle is as good as the next, at least so we're told. We've come to worship at the altar of tolerance, telling ourselves that the truly civilized human being accepts any behavior without passing judgment. Nowhere is this more seen than in the area of sexual morality. I was sitting in an outdoor restaurant some time ago, and a young woman and a man were engaged in a very serious conversation. The woman became quite animated, and I could easily hear every word she was saying. She was telling the young man that she was a truly tolerant woman. In fact, she said, I can't stand intolerant people. You know, go to the university campuses of our country. There you'll hear all manner of people arguing that morality is relative, depends on social standards, which will always be in change. But in the same breath, they will condemn those who disagree. See, why? What's going on? See, as hard as we try, we can never escape the image of God. Every single human being, regardless of their spiritual condition, is created in the image of God and has a sense of oughtness. Some things ought to be, and some things ought not to be. We have categories of right and wrong. We all make judgments about behavior. We can't get away from that. We are all outraged over the abuse of children, over rape, over murder, and swindling the elderly out of their life savings. What are we upset about? If everything is relative, why this anger? See, the answer is simple. We are angry because we operate in moral categories. Why? Because our righteous God is a God of moral categories. The image of God is expressed in morality. Third, the image of God is expressed in relationship and love. From the very beginning of the Bible, God speaks to the man and the woman. We're told that it's not good for a man to be alone. God told Adam to name the animals to enjoy the garden but cling to his wife. 
And the need for relationship spills out in the creation of human institutions, first in the institution of marriage, and as we go along, the institution of laws that govern our relationships, so that how we treat the other gets codified in laws stating that there is an imperative, and that imperative is to love our neighbor. And finally, the image of God is expressed in worship. We're not only in relationship with people, we can't help it. We are made to commune with the God who created us. It's our nature to kneel before our maker and to find in him cause for our highest impulse, which is worship. You know, you can go to any culture in the world, and they may have different views of who God is, but they cannot escape worship. Human beings are incurably religious. It's the most enduring feature of our humanity. All of life is lived constantly responding to God. A famous atheist philosopher speaking about the nature of suffering said that if he ever encountered God, he would shake a cancerous bone in his face and demand why. See, I have another question. Why is he angry with the God he says has never existed? Why this ongoing argument with God? Why can't he let go of God? And the answer is, he was created in God's image, and try as he might, whether in love or in anger, he is condemned to relate to God. Charles Templeton was a Canadian evangelist who preached the gospel alongside of his good friend Billy Graham. They were both young, and both of them were fiery preachers. But Templeton abandoned his faith and became an atheist. Charles Templeton went on to become a Canadian journalist and a radio and television personality. For a short time, he was the editor of Maclean's magazine, and shortly before his death, he was interviewed by Lee Strobel, a Christian editor who started out as an atheist and then became a Christian. And Strobel asked Templeton if there was anything he missed about not being a Christian. And Templeton responded, I miss Jesus. Indeed, that was because he was in the image of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would again help us to reflect on the fact that you have created us wonderfully and marvelously. Help us, Heavenly Father, to understand what it is to be human, and help us, Heavenly Father, to rejoice in what you have done when you have made us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at what it means to be human, we begin to understand how we're made in God's image. We've seen how this view or lack of affects how we view ourselves, other people, our purpose in life, and more. How different our world would look if we embraced and lived by a biblical understanding of humanity. This is an encouraging lesson, but also one I think that challenges all of us, especially when we're aware that our world is filled with people who we dislike, some more than others, and yet they, like us, were created in God's image. How can we learn to see all people this way? May we continue to meditate on these truths and allow them to transform us. I hope you can listen to the program again tomorrow as we continue to unpack part two of what it means to be human in our series in Genesis. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. What makes a family? Family is a bond of body, heart, mind, and soul. And one way to nurture spiritual growth with our families is to share in a time of devotion. Homes are helped by a time and place to talk about the things of God. Family devotions may seem daunting, but help is on the way. This month, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will release a new family devotional, 
four minutes for frazzled families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents looking to provide spiritual leadership in their homes and for their families. Back to the Bible Canada believes these times of sharing together are critical for the spiritual growth of the family. So visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 to request four minutes for frazzled families. And we'll send you and your family this helpful tool for free.